it is sacrilege to rob for civil work the time which God has set apart for his worship. He that devotes any time of the Sabbath to worldly business is a worse thief than he who robs on the highway. For the one does but rob man, but the other robs God. The Lord forbade manna to be gathered on the Sabbath, Exodus 16.26. One might think it would have been allowed, as manna was the staff of their life. And the time when it fell was between five and six in the morning, so that they might have gathered it betimes, and all the rest of the Sabbath might have been employed in God's worship. And besides, they needed not to have taken any great journey for it, for it was but stepping out of their doors, and it fell about their tents, and yet they might not gather it on the Sabbath. And for purposing only to do it, God was very angry. There went out some of the people on the seventh day for to gather, and they found none. And the Lord said, How long refuse ye to keep my commandments and my laws? Exodus 16:27-28. Surely anointing Christ when he was dead was a commendable work, but though Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James had prepared sweet ointments to anoint the dead body of Christ, they went not to the sepulcher to embalm him till the Sabbath was passed. They rested the Sabbath day, according to the commandment, Luke 23:56. The hand cannot be busied on the Lord's day, but the heart will be defiled. The very heathen by light of nature would not do any secular work in the time which they had set apart for the worship of their false gods. Clemens Alexandrinus reports of one of the emperors of Rome who, on the day of set worship for his gods, put aside warlike affairs and spent the time in devotion. To do servile work on the Sabbath shows an irreligious heart and greatly offends God. To do secular work on this day is to follow the devil's plow. It is to debase the soul. God made this day on purpose to raise the heart to heaven, to converse with him, to do angels' work, and to be employed in earthly work is to degrade the soul of its honor. God will not have his day entrenched upon or defiled in the least thing. The man that gathered sticks on the Sabbath, he commanded to be stoned. Numbers 15.35 It would seem a small thing to pick up a few sticks to make a fire, but God would not have this day violated even in the smallest matters. Nay, the work which had reference to a religious use might not be done on the Sabbath, as the hewing of stones for the building of the sanctuary. Bezaliel, who was to cut the stones and carve the timber out for the sanctuary, must forbear to do it on the Sabbath, Exodus 31. A temple is a place of God's worship, but it was a sin to build a temple on the Lord's day. This is keeping the Sabbath day holy negatively in doing no servile work. Works of necessity and charity, however, may be done on this day. In these cases, God will have mercy and not sacrifice. Firstly, it is lawful to take the necessary supplies of nature. Food is to the body as oil to the lamp. Secondly, it is lawful to do works of mercy as helping a neighbor when either life or estate are in danger. Herein the Jews were too nice and precise, who would not allow works of charity to be done on the Sabbath. If a man was sick, they thought they might not on this day use means for his recovery. 
Christ charges them with being angry because he had wrought a cure on the Sabbath. John chapter 7, verse 23. If a house were on fire, the Jews thought they might not bring water to quench it. If a vessel leaked on this day, they thought they might not stop it. They were righteous over much. It was seeming zeal but lacked discretion to guide it, except in these two cases of necessity and charity, all secular work is to be suspended and laid aside on the Lord's day. In it thou shalt do no manner of work. This arraigns and condemns many among us who too much foul their fingers with work on this day, some in dressing great feasts, big dinners, others in opening their shop doors and selling food on the Sabbath. The mariner will not put to sea but on the Sabbath, and so runs full sail into the violation of this command. Others work on this day privately, put up their shop windows, and follow their trade at home. But though they think to hide their sin under a canopy, God sees it, Whither shall I flee from thy presence? The darkness hideth not from thee. Psalm 139, verses 7 and 12. Such profane the day, and God will have an action of trespass against them. Second, positively. We keep the Lord's day holy by consecrating and dedicating this day to the service of the high God. It is good to rest on our Sabbath day from the works of our calling, but if we rest from labor and do no more, the ox and the ass keep the Sabbath as well as we, for they rest from labor. We must dedicate the day to God. We must not only keep a Sabbath, but sanctify a Sabbath. Keep it holy. The Sabbath sanctification consists in two things. One, solemn preparation for it. If a prince were to come to your house, what preparation would you make for his entertainment? You would sweep the house, wash the floor, adorn the room with the richest tapestry and hangings that there might be something suitable to the state and dignity of so great a person. On the blessed Lord's day, God intends to have sweet communion with you. He seems to say to you, as Christ to Zacchaeus, Make haste and come down, for this day I must abide at thy house. Luke 16, uh, Luke 19, verse 5. Now, what preparation should you make for entertaining this King of Glory? When Saturday evening approaches, sound a retreat. Call your minds off from the world and summon your thoughts together to think of the great work of the approaching day. Purge out all unclean affections which may indispose you for the work of the Sabbath. Evening preparation will be like the tuning of an instrument. It will fit your heart better for the duties of the following Sabbath. Second, the sacred observation of it. Rejoice at the approach of Sunday as a day wherein we have a prize for our souls and may enjoy much of God's presence. John 8:56. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. So when we see the light of a Sabbath shine, we should rejoice and call the Sabbath a delight. This is the queen of days, which God has crowned with a blessing. Isaiah 58, 13. As there was one day in the week on which God rained manna twice as much as upon any other day, so he rains down the manna of heavenly blessings twice as much on the Sabbath as on any other. This is the day wherein Christ carries the soul into the house of wine and displays the banner of love over it. 
Now the dew of the Spirit falls on the soul, whereby it is revived and comforted. How many may write of the Lord's day as the day of their new birth? This day of rest is a pledge and earnest of the eternal rest in heaven. Shall we not then rejoice at his approach? The day on which the sun of righteousness shines should be a day of gladness. Get up early on Sunday morning. Christ rose early on this day before the sun was up. John 20, verse 1. Did he rise early to save us? And shall not we rise early to worship and glorify him? Early will I seek thee. Psalm Psalm 63, 1. Can't we be up early on other days? The husbandman is early at his plow. The traveler rises early to go on his journey. And shall not we, who on this day are traveling to heaven, certainly if we loved God as we should, we should rise on this day early, that we may meet with him whom our souls love such as sit up late at work on the night before, are so buried in sleep that they will hardly be up early on a Sunday morning. Fourth point, having dressed your bodies, you must dress your soul for hearing the word. As the people of Israel were to wash themselves before the law was delivered to them, so we must wash and cleanse our souls, and that is done by reading, meditation, and prayer. Exodus 19, verse 10. First, by reading the Word. The Word is a great means to sanctify the heart and bring it into a Sabbath frame of mind. Sanctify them through thy truth, John 17:17. 17, 17. Read not the Word carelessly, but with a seriousness and affection, as the oracle of heaven, the well of salvation, the book of life. David, for its preciousness, esteemed Scripture above gold, and for its sweetness above honey. Psalm 119, verse 10. By reading the word aright, our hearts when dull are quickened, our hearts when hardened are softened, when cold and frozen are inflamed. And we can say as the disciples, did not our heart burn within us? Some step out of their bed to hearing. The reason why many get no more good on a Sunday by the word preached is because they did not have breakfast with God in the morning by reading His Word. Second, by meditation. Get up upon the mount of meditation and there converse with God. Meditation is the soul's retiring within itself that by a serious and solemn thinking upon God, the heart may be raised up to divine affections. Meditation is a work fit for the morning of a Sabbath. Meditate on these four things. Meditate first on the works of creation. This is expressed in the commandment, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, etc. The creation is a looking glass in which we see the wisdom and power of God gloriously represented. God produced this fair structure of the world without any pre-existent matter, and with a word, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, Psalm 33, verse 6. The disciples wondered that Christ could with a word calm the sea, but it was far more astounding with a word to make the sea. Matthew 8:26. On Sunday, let us meditate on the infiniteness of the Creator. Look up to the firmament and see God's wonders. Psalm 107:24. Look into the earth where we may behold the nature of minerals, the 
power of the lodestone, the virtue of herbs, and the beauty of flowers. By meditating on these works of creation so curiously embroidered, we shall learn to admire God and praise Him. O Lord, how manifold are Thy works! In wisdom hast Thou made them all. Psalm 104, verse 24. By meditating on the works of creation, we shall learn to confide in God. He who can create can provide. He that could make us when we were nothing can raise us when we are low. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 124, verse 8. Meditate second on God's holiness. Holy and reverend is His name. Psalm 109, verse 9. Thou art of purer the eyes than to behold evil. Habakkuk 1, 13. God is essentially, originally, and efficiently holy. All the holiness in men and angels is but a crystal stream that runs from this glorious fountain. God loves holiness because it is His own image. A king cannot but love to see his own images stamped on coin. God counts holiness his glory and the most sparkling jewel of his crown. Glorious in holiness, Exodus 15, verse 11. Here is meditation fit for the first entrance upon a Lord's day. The contemplation of this would work in us such a frame of heart as is suitable to a holy God. It would make us reverence his name and hallow his day. While musing upon the holiness of God's nature, we begin to be transformed into His likeness. Meditate third on Christ's love in redeeming us. Revelation 1, 5, Redemption exceeds creation. The one is a monument of God's power, the other of His love. Here is a fit work for a Sabbath. Oh, the infinite, stupendous love of Christ in raising poor, lapsed creatures from a state of guilt and damnation. That Christ, who was God, should die. That this glorious Son of Righteousness should be in an eclipse. We can never admire enough this love, no, not in heaven, that Christ should die for sinners, not sinful angels, but sinful men, that such clods of earth and sin should be made bright stars of glory. Oh, the amazing love of Christ. This was as it is said that Christ should not only die for sinners, but die as a sinner. He hath made him to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who was among the glorious persons of the Trinity was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53.12 Not that he had sin, but he was like a sinner, having our sins imputed to him. Sin did not live in Jesus, but it was laid upon him. Here was an hyperbole of love enough to strike a us with astonishment that Christ should redeem us when he could not expect to gain anything or to be advantaged at all by us. Men will not lay out their money upon purchase unless it will turn to their profit, but what benefit could Christ expect in purchasing and redeeming us? 
we were in such a condition that we could neither deserve nor recompense Christ's love. We could not deserve it, for we were in our blood. Ezekiel 16.6 We had no spiritual beauty to tempt Him. Nay, we were not only in our blood, but we were in arms against Him. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, Romans 5.10. When He was shedding His blood, we were spitting out poison. As we could not deserve, so neither could we recompense it. After He had died for us, we could not so much as love Him till He made us love Him. We could give Him nothing in lieu of His love. Who hath first given to Him? Romans 11:35. We were fallen into poverty. If we have any beauty, it is from Him. It was perfect through my comeliness which I had put upon thee. Ezekiel 16:14. If we bring forth any good fruit, it is not of our own growth. It comes from Him, the true vine. From me is thy fruit found, Hosea 14:8. It was nothing but pure love for Christ to lay out his blood to redeem such as he could not expect to be really bettered by, that Christ should die so willingly. I lay down my life, John 10:17. The Jews could not have taken it away if he had not laid it down. He could have called to his Father for legions of angels to be his lifeguard, but what need for even that, when his own Godhead could have defended himself from all assaults? He laid down his life. The Jews did not so much thirst for his death as he thirsted for our redemption. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished Luke 12:50 He called his sufferings a baptism. He was to be baptized with his own blood, and he thought the time long before he suffered to show Christ's willingness to die. His sufferings are called an offering through the offering of the body of Jesus. Hebrews 10:10 10, 10. His death was a free will offering that Christ should not grudge nor think much of all his sufferings. Though he was scourged and crucified, he was well contented with what he had done, and if it were needful, he would do it again. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied, Isaiah 53:11. As the mother who has had hard labor does not repent of her pangs when she sees a child brought forth, but is well contented, so Christ though he had hard travail upon the cross, does not think much of it. He is not troubled, but thinks his sweat and blood well bestowed, because he sees the man-child of redemption brought forth into the world, that Christ should make redemption effectual to some and not to others. Here is surprising love, though there is a sufficiency in his merits to save all Yet some only partake of their saving virtue. All do not believe. There are some of you, John 6, 64, that believe not. Christ does not pray for all. John 17, 9, some refuse him. This is the stone which the builders refused. Psalm 118.22 Others deride him. Luke 16.14 Others throw off his yoke. We will not have this man to reign over us. 
Luke 19:14, so that all have not the benefit of salvation by him. Herein appears the distinguishing love of Christ, that the virtue of his death should reach some and not others. Not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, that Christ should pass by many of birth and parts, and that the lot of free grace should fall upon you, that he should sprinkle his blood upon you. Oh, the depth of the love of Christ, that Christ should love us with such a transcendent love. The apostle calls it love which passeth knowledge. Ephesians 3:19, that he should love us more than the angels. He loves them as his friends, but believers as his spouse. He loves them with such a kind of love as God the Father bears to him. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. John 15:9. Oh, what an hyperbole of love does Christ show in redeeming us, that Christ's love in our redemption should be everlasting. Having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. John 13:1. As Christ's love is matchless, so it is endless. The flower of his love is sweet, and that which makes it sweeter is that it never dies. His love is eternal. Jeremiah 31, 3. He will never divorce his elect spouse. The failings of his people cannot quite take off his love. They may eclipse it, but not wholly remove it. Their failings may make Christ angry with them, but not hate them. Every failing does not break the marriage bond, but Christ's love is not like the saints' love. They sometimes have strong affections toward Him, at other times the fit is off, and they find little or no love for Christ stirring in them. But it is not so with Christ's love to them. It is a love of eternity. When the sunshine of Christ's electing love is once risen upon the soul, it never finally sets death may take away our life from us, but not Christ's love. Behold, here a rare subject for meditation on a Sunday morning, the meditation of Christ's wonderful love in redeeming us would work in us a Sabbath frame of heart. It would melt us in tears for our spiritual unkindness that we should sin against so sweet a Savior that we should be no more affected with his love, but requite evil for good, that like the Athenians, who notwithstanding all the good service Aristides had done them, banished him out of their city. We should banish Jesus from our temple, that we should grieve him with our pride, rash anger, unfruitfulness, animosities, and strange factions and divisions. Have we none to abuse but our friend? Have we nothing to kick against but the bowels of our Savior? Did not Christ suffer enough upon the cross, but we must needs make him suffer more? Do we give him more gall and vinegar to drink? Oh, if anything can dissolve the heart in sorrow and melt the eyes to tears, it is unkindness offered to Christ. When Peter thought of Christ's love to him... 
how he had made him an apostle and revealed his bosom secrets to him and taken him to the Mount of Transfiguration, and yet that Peter should deny Jesus. It broke his heart with sorrow. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Matthew 26, 75. What a blessed thing it is to have the eyes dripping tears on a Sabbath, and nothing would sooner fetch tears than to meditate on Christ's love to us and our unkindness to Him. Meditating on a Lord's Day morning on Christ's love would kindle love in our hearts to Him. How can we look on His bleeding and dying for us, and our hearts not be warmed with love to Him? Love is the soul of religion, the purest affection. It is not rivers of oil, but sparks of love that Christ values. And sure, as David said, while I was musing, the fire burned. Psalm 39.3 So, while we are musing of Christ's love in redeeming us, the fire of our love will burn towards Him. And then the Christian is in a blessed Sabbath frame when, like a seraphim, he is burning in love to Christ. On a Lord's Day morning, meditate fourthly on the glory of heaven. Heaven is the extract and essence of happiness. Heaven is called a kingdom, Matthew twenty-five thirty-four, a kingdom for its riches and magnificence. Heaven is set forth by precious stones and gates of pearl, Revelation twenty-one nineteen and 21. There is all that is truly glorious in heaven, transparent light, perfect love, unstained honor, unmixed joy. And that which crowns the joy of the celestial paradise is eternity. Suppose earthly kingdoms were more glorious than they are. Their foundations of gold, their walls of pearl, their walls of sapphire. Yet they are corruptible. But the kingdom of heaven is eternal. Those rivers of pleasure run forevermore, Psalm 16:11. That wherein the essence of glory consists and makes heaven to be heaven is the immediate sight and fruition of the blessed God Himself. I shall be satisfied when I awake with Thy likeness. Psalm 17:15. Oh, think of the Jerusalem above. This is proper for a Sunday. The meditation of heaven would raise our hearts above the world. Oh, how would earthly things disappear and shrink into nothing if our minds were mounted above visible things and we had a prospect of glory? How would the meditation of heaven make us heavenly in our Sabbath exercises? It would quicken affection, would add wings to devotion, and cause us to be in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Revelation 1.10 How vigorously does He serve God who has a crown of glory always before His eye? Third, prayer. We dress our souls on a Sabbath morning by prayer. When thou prayest, enter into thy closet. Matthew 6.6 6. Prayer sanctifies Sunday. 
first, the things we should pray for in the morning of the Sabbath. Let us beg a blessing upon the word which is to be preached, that the word may be a savor of life to us, that by scripture our minds may be more illuminated, our corruptions more weakened, and our stock of grace more increased. Let us pray that God's special presence may be with us, that our hearts may burn within us while God speaks, that we may receive the word into meek and humble hearts, and that we may submit to preaching and bring forth fruit, James 1.21. Nor should we only pray for ourselves, but for others. Pray for him who dispenses the word that his tongue may be touched with a coal from God's altar, that God would warm the preacher's heart to his to help to warm others. Your prayers may be a means to quicken the minister. Some complain they find no benefit by the word preached. Perhaps they did not pray for their ministers as they should. Prayer is like the whetting and sharpening of a sword which makes it cut better. Pray with and for your family. Yea, pray for all the congregations that meet on Sundays in the fear of the Lord, that the dew of the Spirit may fall with the manna of the Word, that some souls may be converted and others strengthened, that gospel ordinances may be continued and have no restraint put upon them. These are the things we should pray for. The tree of mercy will not drop its fruit unless it be shaken by the hand of prayer. Secondly, the manner of our prayer. It is not enough to say a prayer. To pray in a dull, cold manner which asks God to deny, but we must pray with reverence, humility, fervency, and hope in God's mercy. Luke 22.44 Christ prayed more earnestly. That we may pray with more fervency, we must pray with a sense of our wants. He who is pinched with wants will be earnest in craving alms. He prays most fervently who prays most feelingly. This is to sanctify the morning of the Lord's day, and it is a good preparation for the word preached. When the ground is broken up by the plow, it is fit to receive the seed. When the heart has been broken by prayer, it is fit to receive the seed of the preached word. Fifth point, having thus dressed your souls on a morning for the further sanctification of the Sabbath, Address yourself to the hearing of the preached word. When you sit down in your seat, lift up your eyes to heaven for a blessing upon the word to be dispensed. For you must know that the word preached does not work as a prescription by its own inherent virtue, but by a virtue from heaven and the cooperation of the Holy Ghost. Therefore put up a short, pointed prayer for a blessing upon the word, that it may be made effectual to you. The word being begun to be preached, hear it with reverence and holy attention. As a certain woman named Lydia attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul, Acts 16.14. Constantine the emperor was noted for his reverent attention to the word. Christ taught daily in the temple, and all the people were very attentive to hear him. Luke chapter 19, verse 48. In the original language, they hung upon his lip. Could we tell men of a rich purchase? They would be diligently attend, and should they not much more when the gospel of grace is preached unto them? That we may sanctify and hallow the Lord's day by attentive hearing. Beware of these two things in hearing, distraction and drowsiness. First, distraction. 
that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. 1 Corinthians 7.35 It is said of Bernard that when he came to the church door, he would say, Stay here, all my earthly thoughts. So should we say to ourselves when we are at the door of God's house, Stay here, all my worldly cares and wandering cogitations. I am now going to hear what the Lord will say to me. Distraction hinders devotion. The mind is tossed with vain thoughts and diverted from the business in hand. It is hard to make a quicksilver heart fix. Jerome complains of himself. Sometimes when I am about God's service, I am walking in the galleries and sometimes casting up accounts. How often in hearing the word, the thoughts dance up and down. And when the eye is upon the preacher, the mind is upon other things. Distracted hearing is far from sanctifying the Sabbath. It is very sinful to give way to vain thoughts at this time, because when we are hearing the word, we are in God's special presence. To do any treasonable action in the king's presence is high, great impudence. Yea, in my house have I found their wickedness. Jeremiah 23.11 So the Lord may say in my house while they are hearing my word, I have found wickedness. They have wanton eyes and their soul is set on vanity. Question. Whence do these roving and distracting thoughts in hearing the preached word come? First, partly from Satan. The devil is sure to be present in our assemblies. If he cannot hinder us from hearing, he will hinder us in hearing. When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan came also among them. Job 1, 6. The devil sets vain objects before the fancy to cause a diversion. His great design is to render the word fruitless. As when one is writing, another bumps him that he cannot write evenly. So when we are hearing, the devil will be bumping us with a temptation that we should not attend to the word preached. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him, Zechariah 3.1. Second, these wandering thoughts in hearing come partly from ourselves. We must not lay all the blame upon Satan. They come from the eye. A wandering eye causes wandering thoughts. As a thief may come into the house at a window, so vain thoughts may be at the eye, as we are bid to keep our feet when we enter into the house of God, Ecclesiastes 5.1. So we had need to make a covenant with our eyes that we be not distracted by beholding other objects. See Job 31.1. Wandering thoughts in hearing rise out of the heart. These sparks come out of our own furnace. Vain thoughts are the mud which the heart, as from a troubled sea, casts up. Mark 7.21, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. As the foulness of the stomach sends up gas into the head, so the corruption of the heart sends up evil thoughts into the mind. Distracted thoughts in hearing proceed from an evil habit. We indulge ourselves in vain thoughts at other times, and therefore we cannot hinder them on a Sunday morning. Habit is second nature. Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Jeremiah 13.23 He that is used to bad company knows not how to leave it. So such as have vain thoughts to keep them company all the week know not how to get rid of those thoughts on the Sabbath. 
Let me show you how evil these vain, distracting thoughts in the hearing are. First, to have the heart distracted in hearing is a disrespect to God's omniscience. God is an all-seeing spirit, and the thoughts speak louder in his ears than words do in ours. He declareth unto man, What is his thought? Amos 4.13 To make no conscience of wandering thoughts in hearing the preaching is an affront to God's omniscience, as if God knew not our heart or did not hear the language of our thoughts. Second, to give way to wandering thoughts in hearing is hypocrisy. We pretend to hear what God says, and our minds are quite upon another thing. We present God with our bodies, but do not give Him our hearts. Hosea 7.11 This hypocrisy God complains of. This people draw near to me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their hearts from me. Isaiah 29.13 This is to prevaricate and deal falsely with God. Third, vain thoughts in hearing discover much want of love to God. Did we love Him, we should listen to His words as oracles and write them upon the table of our heart. Proverbs 3, 3. When a friend whom we love speaks to us and gives us advice, we attend with seriousness and suck in every word. Giving our thoughts leave to ramble in holy duties shows a great defect in our love to God. Fourthly, vain, impertinent thoughts in hearing the preaching defile an ordinance. They are as dead flies in the box of an ointment. When a string of a lute is out of tune, it spoils the music. So distraction of thought puts the mind out of tune and makes our services sound harsh and unpleasant. Wandering thoughts poison a duty and turn it into sin. Psalm 109, verse 7, let his prayer become sin. What can be worse than to have a man's praying and hearing of the word become sin? Would it not be sad if the food we eat would make us sicker? How much more when hearing the word, which is the food of the soul, is turned into sin? Fifthly, vain thoughts in hearing offend God. If the king were speaking to one of his subjects, and he should not give heed to what the king says, but be thinking on another business or playing with a feather, would not the king be provoked? So, when we are not in God's presence, and he is speaking to us in his word, and we mind not much what he says, but our hearts go after covetousness, will it not offend God to be thus slighted? Ezekiel 33:31. He has pronounced a curse upon such. Cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. Malachi 1.14 To have strong, lively affections is to have a male in the flock. But to hear the word with distraction is to give God duties fly-blown with vain thoughts, and to offer to the Lord a corrupt thing, which brings a curse. Cursed be the deceiver, saith the Lord. Sixthly, vain thoughts in hearing preaching when allowed and not resisted make way for hardening the heart. A stone in the heart is worse than a kidney stone. Distracted thoughts in hearing do not better the heart, but harden it. Vain thoughts take away the holy awe of God which should be upon the heart. They make conscience less tender and hinder the efficacy the word should have upon the heart. 
Seventhly, vain and distracting thoughts rob us of the comfort of an ordinance. A gracious soul often meets with God in the sanctuary, and can say, I found him whom my soul loveth. Canticle, Song of Solomon 3, 4. He is like Jonathan, who, when he had tasted the honey on the rod, had his eyes lightened. But vain thoughts hinder the comfort of an ordinance, as a black cloud hides the warm, comfortable beams of the sun. Will God speak peace to us when our minds are wandering and our thoughts are traveling to the ends of the earth? If ever you would hear the word with attention, Proverbs 17:24, do as Abraham when he drove away the fowls from the sacrifice, Genesis 15:11. When you find these excursions and sinful wanderings in hearing, labor to drive away the fowls. Get rid of these vain thoughts. They are vagrants and must not be entertained. Question: How shall we get rid of these vagabond thoughts? First. Pray and watch against them. Second, let the sense of God's omniscient eye overawe your hearts. The servant will not play in his master's presence. Third, labor for a holy frame of heart. Were the heart more spiritual, the mind would be less feathery. Fourth, bring more love to the word. We fix our minds upon that which we love. He that loves his pleasures and playtime fixes his mind upon that and can follow them without distraction. Were our love more set upon the preached word, our minds would be more fixed upon it, and surely there is enough to make us love the word preached, for it is the word of life, the inlet to knowledge, the antidote against sin, the quickener of all holy affections. It is the true manna, which has all sorts of sweet tastes in it, the pool of Bethsaida, in which the rivers of life spring forth to heal the broken in heart, and a sovereign elixir, or cordial, a remedy to revive the sorrowing spirit. Get love to the word preached, and you will not be so distracted in hearing what the heart delights in the thoughts dwell upon. Secondly, take heed of drowsiness in hearing. Sleepy head shows much irreverence. How lively are many when they are about the world, but in the worship of God how drowsy, as if the devil had given them opium to make them sleep. A drowsy feeling here is very sinful. Are you not in prayer asking pardon of sin? Will the prisoner fall asleep when he's begging pardon? In the preaching of the word, is not the bread of life broken to you? And will a man fall asleep over his food? Which is worse, to stay away from a sermon or sleep at a sermon? While you slept, perhaps the truth was delivered which might have converted your soul. Besides, sleeping is very offensive in a holy assembly. It not only grieves the Spirit of God, but makes the hearts of the righteous sad. Ezekiel 13.22 It troubles God's people to see any show such contempt of God and His worship, to see them busy in the shop, but drowsy in church. Therefore, as Christ said, Could ye not watch one hour? So can ye not wake one hour? Matthew 26:40. I deny not, but a child of God may sometimes, through weakness and indisposition of body, drop asleep at a sermon. Remember the young man in the third story window. 
Acts chapter 20, but not voluntarily or ordinarily. The sun may be in an eclipse, but not often eclipsed. If sleeping be customary and loud, it is a very bad sign and a profanation of the ordinance of preaching. A good remedy against drowsiness is to use a spare diet upon the Lord's day. Such as indulge their appetites and eat too much on the Sabbath are fitter to sleep on a couch than pray in a temple. That you may throw off distracting thoughts and drowsiness on the Lord's day and may hear the word with reverent attention, consider first, it is God that speaks to us in His Word. Therefore the preaching of the Word is called the breath of His lips. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, Christ is said now to speak to us from heaven as a king speaks in his ambassador. Hebrews 12:25. Preachers, ministers, are but pipes and organs. It is the Spirit of the living God that breathes in them. When we come to the Word, we should think within ourselves. God is speaking in this preacher. The Thessalonians heard the word Paul preached as if God himself had spoken to them. When ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 When Samuel knew it was the Lord that spake to him, he lent his ear. 1 Samuel 3.10 If we do not regard God when he speaks to us, he will not regard us when we pray to him. Secondly, consider how serious and weighty the matters delivered to us are. Moses said, I call heaven and earth to record this day that I have set before you life and death. Deuteronomy 30.19 Can men be heedless of the word or sleepy when the weighty matters of eternity are set before them? We preach faith and holiness of life, and the day of judgment and eternal retribution. Here life and death are set before you. And does not all this call for serious attention? If a letter were read uh, to one of the special business wherein his life and estate were concerned, would he not be very serious in listening to it? Or when a will is read to the heirs? So in the preaching of the word your salvation is concerned, and if ever you would attend, it should be now. It is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. Deuteronomy 32:47. Thirdly, to give way to vain thoughts and drowsiness in hearing preaching gratifies Satan. He knows that not to mind a duty is all one in religion as not to do it at all. What the heart doth not do is not done. Therefore Christ says of some, hearing they hear not, Matthew 13, 13. How could that be? Because though the words sounded in their ear, yet they minded not what was said to them. Their thoughts were upon other things, therefore it was all as one as if they did not hear. Does it not please the devil to see men come to the word and just as good stay away? They are haunted with vain thoughts. They are taken off from the duty while they are in it. Their body is in the assembly, their heart in their shop. Hearing they hear not. Fourthly, each Lord's day may be the last we shall ever keep. We may go from the place of hearing the word to the place of the judgment seat of Christ. And shall not we give reverent attention to the word? 
Did we think when we came into God's house, perhaps this will be the last time that ever God will counsel me about my soul? And before another sermon, death's alarm will sound in my ear. With what attention and devotion should you feel, and your affections would be all on fire in hearing? Fifth, you must give an account for every sermon you hear. Give an account of your stewardship, Luke 16, 2. So will God say, give an account of your hearing. Have you been affected with the word? Have you profited by the word preached? How can you give a good account if you've been distracted in hearing and haven't taken notice of what has been said to you? The judge to whom you must give an account is God. Were you to give account to man, you might falsify your account, but you must give an account to God. Bernard said he is so just a God that he cannot be bribed, and so wise that he cannot be deceived. Therefore, having to give an account to such an impartial judge, how should we observe every word preached, remembering the account? Let all this make us shake off distraction and drowsiness in hearing, and have our ears chained to the word. Sixth point in remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In order to hear the word aright, let the following things be attended to. First, lay aside those dispositions which may render the preached word ineffectual, as, one, curiosity. Some go to hear the word preached not so much to get grace as to enrich themselves with notions, having itching ears, Second Timothy 4, 3. Augustine confesses that before he was saved, he went to hear Ambrose for his eloquence rather than for the spirituality of the matter. Thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, Ezekiel 33:32. Many go to preaching to feast their ears only. They like the melody of the voice, the mellifluous sweetness of the expression, and the novelty of the opinions, Acts. 17.21. This is to love the garnishing of the dish more than the food on the dish. It is to desire to be pleased rather than edified, like a woman that paints her face but neglects her diet. They paint and adorn themselves with curious speculations but neglect their soul's health. This hearing neither sanctifies the heart nor the Sabbath. Two, lay aside prejudice. Prejudice is sometimes against the truths preached. The Sadducees were prejudiced against the doctrine of the resurrection, Luke 20, 27. Sometimes prejudice is against the person preaching. There is one, Micaiah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. 1 Kings 22, 8. This hinders the power of the word. If a patient has a bad opinion of his doctor, he will not take any of his medicines, however good the medicines may be. Prejudice in the mind is like an obstruction in the stomach which hinders the nutritive virtue of food. It poisons the word and causes it to lose its efficacy. Three, lay aside covetousness. Covetousness is not only getting worldly gain unjustly, but loving it inordinately. This is a great hindrance to the preached word. The seed which fell among thorns was choked, Matthew 13, 22, a fit emblem of the word when preached to a covetous hearer. 
The covetous man is thinking on the world when he's supposed to be hearing preaching. His heart is in his shop. They sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. Ezekiel 33. 31. A covetous hearer derides the word. The Pharisees, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided Jesus. Luke 16.14. 4. Lay aside partiality. Partiality in hearing is when we like to hear some truths preached, but not all. We love to hear of heaven, but not of self-denial, of reigning with Christ, but not of suffering with Him, of the more easy duties of religion, but not those which are more knotty and difficult, as mortification, laying the axe to the root, and hewing down our precious beloved sin. Speak smooth things, Isaiah 30, verse 10, such as may not grate upon my conscience, Many like to hear of the love of Christ, but not of loving their enemies. They like the comforts of the word, but not its reproofs. Herod heard John the Baptist gladly. He liked many truths, but not when he spake against his incest. Fifth, lay aside censoriousness. Some, instead of judging themselves for sin, sit in judgment upon the preacher. His sermon had either too much gall in it, or it was too long. They would sooner censure a sermon than practice it. God will judge that judger, Matthew 7, 1. 6. Lay aside disobedience. All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient people. Romans 10.21, it is said of the Jews that God stretched out his hands in the preaching of the word, but they rejected Christ. Let there be none among you that willfully refuse the counsels of the word. It is sad to have a snake's ear and a heart of stone. Zechariah 7.11.12, if when God speaks to us in his word, we are deaf. When we speak to God in prayer, he will be dumb. Second, if you would hear the word aright, have good ends in hearing. Come to the word to be made better. Some have no other end in hearing but because it is in fashion, or to gain repute, or stop the mouth of conscience. But you come to the word to be made more holy. There is a great difference between one who goes to a garden for a flower to wear in his hat, and another that goes for flowers to make syrups and medicines, remedies. We should go to the word for medicine to cure us. As Naaman the Syrian went to Jordan to be healed of his leprosy, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. First Peter 2, 2. Go to the word to be changed into its similitude. As the seal leaves its print upon the wax, so labor that the word preached may leave the print of its own holiness upon your softened heart. Labor that the word may have such a virtue in you as the water of jealousy, to kill and make fruitful, that it may kill your sins and make your souls fruitful in grace. Numbers 5.27 Point three, if you would hear the word aright, go to it with delight. 
The word preached is a feast of fat things. With what delight do men go to a feast? The word preached anoints the blind eye, mollifies the rocky heart. It beats off our fetters and turns us from the power of Satan unto God. Acts 26, 18. The word is the seed of regeneration and the engine of salvation. James 1, 18. Hear the word with delight and complacency. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. Jeremiah 15:16 How sweet are thy words unto my taste yea sweeter than honey to my mouth Psalm 119:103 Love the word that comes most home to your conscience Bless God when your corruptions have been dealt with when the sword of the spirit has divided between you and your sins Who cares for medicine that doesn't work Fourth if you would hear the word of right a right mix it with faith. Believe the truth of the word. Preach that it is the word by which you must be judged. Not only give credence to the word preached, but apply it to your own soul. Faith digests the word and turns it into spiritual nourishment. Many hear the word, but it may be said of them, as in Psalm 106, verse 24, they believed not his word. As one preacher said to a group of folks, ye worship God in the bread when ye do not believe him to be in heaven. So many hear God's words, but do not believe that God is. They question the truth of his oracles. If we do not mix faith with the word, it is like leaving out the chief ingredient in a medicine, which makes it ineffectual. Unbelief hardens men's hearts against the word. Divers were hardened and believed not, Acts 19 and verse 9. Men hear many truths delivered concerning the preciousness of Christ, the beauty of holiness, and the felicity of a glorified estate, but if through unbelief and atheism they question these truths, we may as well speak to stones and sticks as to them. That word which is not believed can never be practiced. As it is said by Jerome, when belief is unstable, conduct also wavers. Unbelief makes the word preached of no effect. The word preached did not profit, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Hebrews 4, 2. The word to an unbeliever is like a sweet drink put into a dead man's mouth, which loses all its virtue. If there be any unbelievers in our congregations, what shall preachers say of them to God at the last day? Lord, we have preached to the people thou sentest us to. We have showed them our commission. We have declared unto them thy whole counsel, but they have not believed a word we spake. We told them what would be the fruit of sin, but they would not heed. They would drink their sugared draft, though there was death in the cup. Lord, we are free from their blood. God forbid that ministers should ever have to make this report to him of their people, but this they will be forced to do if their hearers live and die in unbelief. Would you sanctify the Lord's day by hearing the word aright? Hear it with faith. The apostle puts the two together, belief and salvation. We are of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Hebrews 10, 39. 
Fifthly, if you would hear the word aright, hear it with meek spirits. James 1.21 Receive the word with meekness. Meekness is a submissive frame of heart to the word. Contrary to this meekness is fierceness of spirit. When men rise up in rage against the word, as if the patient should be angry with the doctor when he gives him a medicine to purge out his bad humors. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and gnashed on Stephen with their teeth. Acts 7.54 Asa was wroth with the seer and put him in a prison house. 2 Chronicles 16.10 Pride and guilt make men fret at preaching. What made Asa enraged but pride? He was a king and thought he was too good to be told of his sin. What made Cain angry when God said to him, Where is Abel, thy brother? He replied, Am I? my brother's keeper. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.